Chapter 19 Prayer and Labor for the Gathering of the Great Harvest But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Matthew 9, 36-38 In discussing this subject, I intend to discuss the following. Roman numeral 1. To whom this precept is addressed. Roman numeral 2. What is intended by this precept? Roman numeral 3. What is implied in the prayer required? Roman numeral 4. To show that the state of mind that constitutes obedience to this precept is an indispensable condition of salvation. Roman numeral 1. The precept is addressed to all who are under obligation to be benevolent. Therefore, it is addressed to all classes and all beings upon whom the law of love is imposed. Consequently, it is addressed to all human beings. For all who are human bear moral responsibility, should care for the souls of their fellows, and, of course, fall under the broad sweep of this request. Notice the occasion for Christ's remark. He was visiting the cities and villages of his country, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Matthew 9.35 He saw multitudes before him, mostly in great ignorance of God and salvation, and his deeply compassionate heart was moved because he saw them fainting and scattered abroad as sheep without a shepherd. They were perishing for the lack of the bread of heaven, and who should go and provide it for their needy souls? His feelings were even more affected because he saw that they felt hungry. They not only were famishing for the bread of life, but they seemed to have some awareness of the fact. They were just then in the condition of a harvest field, the white grain of which is ready for the sickle and awaits the coming of the reapers. In the same way, the multitudes were ready to be gathered into the granary of the great Lord of the harvest. No wonder this sight would touch the deepest compassions of his compassionate heart. Roman numeral 2. What is really intended in this precept, Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. 
every precept relating to the external conduct has its spirit and also its letter, the letter referring to the external, but the spirit to the internal, yet both are involved in real obedience. In the present situation, the letter of the precept requires prayer. However, let no one think that merely using the words of prayer is real obedience. In addition to the words, there must be a praying state of mind. The precept does not require us to lie and play the hypocrite before God. No one can for a moment suppose this to be the case. Therefore, it must be admitted that the precept requires the spirit of prayer as well as the letter. It requires first a praying state of mind, and then also its proper expression in the forms of prayer. What then is the true spirit of this precept? I answer that it is love for souls. Certainly, it does not require us to pray for people without any heart in our prayer, but that we should pray with a sincere heart, full of real love for human well-being, a love for immortal souls, and a deep concern for their salvation. It undoubtedly requires the same compassion that Jesus himself had for souls. His heart was filled with real compassion for dying souls, and he was conscious that his own state of mind was a right one. Therefore, he could not do less than require the same state of mind of all his people, and so he requires us to have real and deep compassion for souls, such compassion that really moves the heart, for such, most obviously, was his. This involves a full commitment of the soul to this purpose. Christ had committed his soul to the great labor of saving people. He labored and toiled for this. His heart agonized for this. His life was ready to be offered for this. Therefore, he could do no less than require the same of his people. Again, an honest offering of this prayer implies a willingness on our part for God to use us in his harvest field in any capacity he pleases. When the farmer gathers his harvest, many things are to be done, and he often needs many hands to do them. Some he sends in to cut the grain and others to bind it. Some gather into the barn, and others glean the field so that nothing is lost. In the same way, Christ will have a variety of labors for his servants in the great harvest field, and no one can be of real use to him unless they are willing to work in any department of their master's service thankful for the privilege of doing the humblest service for such a master and in such a cause. Therefore, it is implied in honest prayer for this purpose that we are really committed to the work and that we have given ourselves up most sincerely and entirely to do all we can for Christ and His cause on earth.
we are always on hand, ready for any work or for any suffering. For clearly, if we do not have this mind, we do not need to think that we are praying to any good purpose. It would simply be a pitiful and insulting prayer to say, Lord, send somebody else to do all the hard work, and let me do little or nothing. Everybody knows that such a prayer would only insult God and curse the one praying. Therefore, sincere prayer for Christ's cause implies that you are willing to do anything you can do to promote its interests by the actual and absolute devotion of all your powers and resources for this purpose. You may not withhold even your own children. Nothing will be too dear for you to offer on God's altar. Suppose a person would give nothing. Suppose he would withhold all his substance and withhold all efforts, except he says that he will pray. He professes to really pray, but do you suppose that his prayer has any heart in it? Does he mean what he says? Does he love the purpose more than anything else? Truly, no. You could never say that a young person does all he can for Christ's harvest if he refuses to go into the field to work, nor that an aged but wealthy person is doing all he can if he refuses to give anything to help sustain the field laborers. Roman numeral 3. What then is implied in really obeying this precept? A sense of personal responsibility in respect to the salvation of the world is implied in obeying this precept. No one ever begins to obey this command who does not feel a personal responsibility in this thing that brings it home to his soul as his own work. He must really believe that this is my work for life. For this I am to live and spend my strength. It does not matter on this point whether you are young enough to go abroad into the foreign field or whether you are qualified for the gospel ministry. You must feel such a sense of responsibility that you will gladly and most wholeheartedly do all you can. You can do the hewing of the wood or the drawing of the water, Joshua 9.21, even if you cannot fill the more responsible trusts. An honest and consecrated heart is willing to do any sort of work and bear any sort of burden. Unless you are willing to do anything you can successfully and wisely do, you will not be conforming to the conditions of a prayerful state of mind. Another aspect is a sense of the value of souls. You must see solemnly that souls are precious, that their guilt while in unpardoned sin is fearful and their danger is most alarming. Without such a sense of the value of the interests at stake, you will not pray with fervent, strong desire. 
Without a proper understanding of their sin, danger, and remedy, you will not pray in faith for God's interposing grace. Indeed, you must have so much of the love of God, a love like God's love for sinners in your soul, that you are ready for any sacrifice or any labor. You need to feel as God feels. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. John 3.16 You need to love the world in such a way that your love will draw you to make similar sacrifices and put forth similar labors. Each servant of God must have a love for souls, the same kind that God had in giving up His Son to die, and that Christ had in coming cheerfully down to make Himself the offering. Or His prayers for this object will have little heart and no power with God. This love for souls is always implied in acceptable prayer that God would send forth laborers into His harvest. I have often thought that the reason why so many people pray only in form and not in heart for the salvation of souls is that they lack this love, like God's love, for the souls of the perishing. Acceptable prayer for this purpose implies confidence in the ability, wisdom, and willingness of God to push forward this work. No one can pray for what he thinks might be opposed to God's will, or that is beyond his ability, or is too complicated for his wisdom. If you ask God to send forth laborers, the very prayer assumes that you trust in His ability to do the work well and in His willingness, in answer to prayer, to carry it forward. The very idea of prayer implies that you understand this to be part of the divine plan, that Christians should pray for God's intervening power and wisdom to carry forward this great work. You do not pray until you see that God gives you the privilege, commands the duty, and encourages it by assuring you that it is an essential method, an indispensable condition of His inserting His power to give success. You remember that it is said, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. Ezekiel 36, 37. No one complies with the spirit of this condition who does not pray with his might fervently and with great perseverance and urgency for the blessing. He must feel the pressure of a great cause and must also feel that it cannot prosper without God's intervening power. Weighed down by these considerations, he will pour out his soul with intensely fervent supplications. Unless the body of Christ is filled with the spirit of prayer, God will not send forth the laborers into his harvest. The command to pray for such laborers plainly implies that God expects prayer 
and he will wait until it is made. This prayer comes into his plan as one of the appointed methods, and it can by no means be done away with. It was undoubtedly in answer to prayer that God sent out such a multitude of strong men after the ascension. How obviously did prayer and the special hand of God bring in a Saul of Tarsus and send him forth to call in whole tribes and nations of the Gentile world? Along with him were a host of others. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company that published it. Psalm 68, 11. That this prayer should be in faith, resting in assurance on God's everlasting promise, is too obvious to need proof or illustration. Honest, sincere prayer implies that we lay ourselves and all we have upon His altar. We must feel that this is our business and that our disposable strength and resources are to be committed to its pursuit. It is only then when we are given up to the work that we can honestly ask God to raise up laborers and carry the work forward. When a person's lips say, Lord, send forth laborers, but his life suggests, I don't care whether anyone goes or not, I will not help with the work, you will of course know that he is only playing the hypocrite before God. I do not imply by this that every honest servant of Christ must feel himself called to the ministry and must enter it. By no means. God does not call every pious man into this field, but has many other fields and labors that are essential parts of the great whole. The thing I have to say is that we must be ready for any part whatsoever that God's providence assigns us. When we can go and are in a situation to obtain the necessary education, then the true spirit of the prayer in our text implies that we pray that God would send us. If we are in a condition to go, then plainly this prayer implies that we have the heart to ask for the privilege for ourselves that God would put us into his missionary work. Then we will say with the ancient prophet, Lord, here am I, send me. Isaiah 6 8. Do you not think that Christ expected his disciples to go and to desire to go? Did he not assume that they would pray for the privilege of being put into this precious group of laborers? How can we be in real sympathy with Christ unless we love the work of laboring in this gospel harvest and desire to be commissioned to go forth and put in our sickle with our own hand? Most certainly, if we were to have the heart of Christ, we would say, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. Luke 12:50 We would cry out, Lord, let me go, let me go, for dying millions are right now perishing in their sins. 
How can I ask God to send out others if I am unwilling in heart to go myself? I have heard many say that they would go themselves if they were young. This seems like a state of mind that can honestly pray for God to send forth laborers. The spirit of this prayer implies that we are willing to make any personal sacrifices in order to go. Are not people always willing to make personal sacrifices in order to gain the great object of their heart's desire? Did ever a merchant seeking fine pearls find one of great value without being quite willing to go and sell all that he had and buy it? Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Additionally, an honest heart before God in this prayer implies that you are willing to do all you can to prepare yourselves to accomplish this work. Each young man or young woman should say, God requires something of me in this work. God might want you as a helper in some missionary family. If so, you are ready to go. No matter what the work may be, no labor done for God or for others is demeaning. In the spirit of this prayer you will say, If I may only wash the feet of my Lord's servants, I will richly enjoy it. All young people especially, feeling that life is before them, should say, I must devote myself in the most effective way possible to the promotion of my Savior's cause. Suppose someone bows his soul in earnest prayer before God, saying, O Lord, send out hosts of people into this harvest field. Does not this imply that he is getting himself ready for this work with his might? Does it not imply that he is ready to do the best he can in any way whatsoever? This prayer, made honestly, also implies that we do all we can to prepare others to go out. Our prayer will be, Lord, give us hearts to prepare others, and get as many people ready as possible, and as well prepared as possible for the gathering in of this great harvest. Of course, it is also implied that we abstain from whatever would hinder us, and that we would not make any arrangements that would tie our hands. Many young Christians do this, sometimes carelessly, often in a way that shows that they are by no means fully set to do God's work anyway. When we honestly ask God to send out laborers, and our own circumstances allow us to go, we are to expect that He will send us. What? Does God need laborers of every description, and will He not send us? Depend on it that He will send out the person who prays properly and whose heart is deeply and fully with God. We do not need to be concerned that God would lack the needful wisdom to manage His matters well. He will put all His workers where they should be, into the fields they are best qualified to fill. 
the good reaper will be put into his post, sickle in hand. If there are feeble ones who can only glean, he puts them there. When youth have health and the means for obtaining an education, they must assume that God calls them to this work. They should assume that God expects them to enter the field. They will fix their eye upon this work as their own. Thinking of the multitudes of God's true children who are lifting up this prayer, Lord, send forth laborers to gather in the nations to your Son, they will certainly presume that the Lord will answer these prayers and send out all His faithful, ready, and true workers into this field. Most certainly, if God has given you the mind, the training, the tact, the heart, and the opportunity to get all needful preparation, you may know that He will send you forth. Is it possible that I am prepared, ready, and waiting, with the hosts of the church praying that God would send forth laborers, yet He will not send me? Impossible. One indispensable part of this preparation is to have a heart for it, most plainly so, for God wants no one in his harvest field whose heart is not there. You would not want laborers in your field who have no heart for their work. Neither does God. However, he expects us to have this preparation of a ready and willing heart, and He will accept no one's excuse from service that has no heart to engage in it. The lack of a heart for this work is not your misfortune, but your fault, your great and damning sin. Roman numeral 4 this state of mind is an indispensable condition of salvation. Many people in the church are dreadfully in the dark about the conditions of salvation. I was once preaching on this subject, urging that holiness is one condition of salvation, without which no man can see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. When I was confronted and strenuously opposed by a doctor of divinity. He said that the Bible makes faith the sole and only condition of salvation. He said that Paul preached that faith is the condition, and plainly meant to exclude every other condition. I answered that Paul emphasized so earnestly and held up so prominently the doctrine of salvation by faith because he had to oppose the great Jewish error of salvation by works. Such preaching was greatly and specifically needed then, and Paul charged on to the field to meet the emergency. But when antinomianism developed itself, James was called out to uphold with equal determination the doctrine that faith without works is dead and that good works are the legitimate fruit of living faith and are essential to demonstrate its life and genuineness. 
This at once raised a new question about the nature of gospel faith. James held that all true gospel faith must work by love. It must be an affectionate filial trust that draws the soul into agreement with Christ and leads it forward powerfully to do all His will. Many professed Christians believe that nothing is necessary except simply faith and repentance, and that faith can exist without real benevolence, and consequently without good works. This is a great mistake. The great demand that God makes upon man is for him to become truly benevolent. This is the essence of all true religion a state of mind that has compassion like God's compassion for human souls, that cries out in earnest prayer for their salvation, and that does not shy away from any labor to achieve this purpose. If, therefore, true religion is a condition of salvation, then the state of mind developed in our text is also a condition. Remarks 1. This state of mind is as much required upon sinners as upon saints. All people should feel this compassion for souls. Why not? Can any reason be given why a sinner should not feel as much compassion for souls as a Christian, or why he should not love God and man as fervently? 2. Professors of Christianity who do not obey the true spirit of these precepts are hypocrites, without one exception. They profess to be truly religious, but are they? Certainly not, unless they are on the altar, devoted to God's work, and in heart sincerely sympathizing in it. Without this, every one of them is a hypocrite. You profess to have the Spirit of Christ, but when you see the multitudes as Jesus saw them, perishing for lack of gospel light, do you cry out in mighty prayer with compassion for their souls? If you do not have this Spirit, you can consider yourself a hypocrite. 3. Many people do not pray that God would send forth laborers because they are afraid He will send them. I can remember when Christianity was repulsive to me, because I was afraid that if I would be converted, God would send me to preach the gospel. But I thought further on this subject. I said that God has a right to deal with me as He pleases, and I have no right to resist. If I do resist, he will put me in hell. If God wants me to be a minister of his gospel and I resist and rebel, he should certainly put me in hell. And, undoubtedly, he will. There are many young men and women in Christian colleges who never give themselves to prayer for the conversion of the world, for fear that God would send them into this work. 
You would be ashamed to pray, Lord, send forth laborers, but don't send me. If the reason you don't want to go is that you have no heart for it, then without mistake, you can consider yourself a hypocrite. If you say, I have a heart for the work, but I am not qualified to go, then you may consider that God will not call you unless you are or can be qualified. He does not want unfit workers in the service. 4. For the last quarter of a century, the ministry has fallen into disgrace for this reason. Many young men have entered it who never should have entered. Their hearts are not established, and they shy away from making sacrifices for Christ and His cause. Therefore, they do not go straight forward, true to what is right, firm for the oppressed, and strong for every good word and work. By entire groups, they back out from the position that they have sworn to maintain. The hearts of multitudes of lay brethren and sisters are in great distress, crying out over this fearful defection. To a minister who was complaining of the public reproach cast on his profession, a layman of Boston replied, I am sorry there is so much need for it. God intends to rebuke the ministry, and He should rebuke them, since they so richly deserve it. Do not understand me to say that this wavering in the ministry is universal. No, indeed. I am glad to know there are exceptions. However, the painful fact still remains that many have relapsed, and consequently, as a class, they have lost character and this has discouraged many young men from entering the ministry. Let this be so no longer. Let the young men now preparing for the ministry come up to the spirit of their master and rush to the front of the battle. Let them labor for the good of souls and love this work as their great Lord has done before them. Let them by their faithfulness redeem the character of this class of men from the reproach under which it now lies. Let them rally in their strength and lay themselves with one heart on the altar to God. So doing, not one generation should pass away before it will be said, Behold the faithful men. Notice the men whose heart is in and on their work. The ministry is redeemed. 5. With sorrow, I am compelled to say that many people don't care whether the work is done or not. They are all consumed with ambitious, selfish desires. Who does not know that they do not identify with Jesus Christ? Beloved, let me ask you if you are honestly aware of identifying with your great leader. I can never read the passage before us without being affected by the demonstration it makes of Christ's tenderness and love. 
the thronging multitudes were there before him. To the merely external eye, all might have seemed fine. But to those who thought of their spiritual state, there was enough to move the deep fountains of compassion. Christ saw them scattered abroad as sheep who have no shepherd. They had no teachers or guides in whom they could commit their trust. They were in darkness and moral death. Christ wept over them and called on his disciples to sympathize in their case and to unite with him in mighty prayer to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers. Such was his spirit. And now, dear young men and women, do you care whether or not this work is done? 6. Many people seem determined to avoid this labor and to leave it all for others to do. Indeed, they will hardly consider the question of what part God wants them to take and do. Now let me ask you if such people will be welcomed and applauded in the end of the herald of judgment, crying out, Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Matthew 25, 21. No, never. 7. Many people say that they are not called. But really, they are not devoted to this work so as to care whether they are called or not. They do not want to be called. The very fact that you have the necessary qualifications, means, and skills for preparation indicates God's call. These constitute the voice of His providence saying, Go forth and prepare for labor in my vineyard. There is your instruction. Use it. There are the classes for you to enter. Go in and work and learn until you are ready to enter the great white fields of the Savior's harvest. If God is preparing you, you must work and apply yourself to keep up with His call. Pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, seek the divine anointing, and give yourself no rest until you are in all things equipped for the work God assigns to you. It is painful to see that many people are committing themselves in some way or other against the work. They are putting themselves in a position which of itself prevents taking their part in it. Let me ask you, young people, can you expect ever to be saved if, when you have the power and the means to engage in this work, you have no heart for it? No, indeed. You knock in vain at the gate of the blessed. You may go there and knock, but what will be the answer? Are you my faithful servants? Were you among the few, faithful among the faithless, willing servants, always ready at your master's call? No, oh, no. You studied how you could avoid the labor and the self-denial. I do not know you. Your portion lies outside the city walls. 
let no one excuse himself as not called. For God calls everyone to some sort of labor in the great harvest field. Therefore, you never need to excuse yourself as not called to some service for your Lord and Master. Let no young man excuse himself from the ministry unless his heart is on the altar and he himself is praying and longing to go, but is only held back by an obvious call of God through his providence to some other part of the great labor. Many people will be sent to hell in the end for treating this subject as they have, with so much selfishness at heart. I know a young man who for a long time struggled between a strong conviction that God called him to the ministry and a great resistance against engaging in this work. I know what this feeling is, for I felt it a long time myself. For a long time, I had a secret conviction that I should be a minister, although my heart resisted it. In fact, my conversion depended very much upon my giving up this contest with God and subduing this resistant feeling against God's call. 8. You can see what it is to be a Christian and what God demands of people at conversion. The turning point is, will you really and honestly serve God? With students especially, the question is likely to be, will you abandon all your ambitious plans and devote yourself to the humble, unambitious work of proclaiming Christ's gospel to the poor? Most young men and women in Christian colleges are ambitious and aspiring. They have plans of self-elevation, which can be difficult to completely renounce. For this reason, your being a Christian and being saved at last will depend much, and perhaps completely, on your giving yourself up to this work in the true self-denial of the gospel spirit. 9. Many people have been called to this work who afterward backslide and abandon it. They begin well, but backslide. They get into a state of great perplexity about their duty. Possibly, like Balaam, they are so unwilling to see their duty and so eager to get away from it that God will not struggle with them any longer, but gives them up to their covetousness or their ambition. Young man, are you earnestly crying out, Lord, what will you have me do? Be assured that God wants you in His field somewhere. He has not abandoned His harvest to perish. He wants you in it, but He first wants you to repent and prepare your heart for the gospel ministry you do not need to enter it until you have done this. Many people are waiting for a miraculous call. This is a great mistake. God does not often call people in any miraculous way. The finger of His providence points out the path, 
and the competence he gives you indicates the work for you to do. You do not need to fear that God will call you wrong. He will point out the work he wants you to do. Therefore, ask him to guide you to the right place in the great field. He will certainly do it. Young men, will you deal kindly and truly with my master in this matter? Do you pray, God, I am available, ready for any part of the work you have for me to do? What will you say? Are you prepared to take this ground? Will you consecrate your education to this work? Are you ready and yearning to consecrate your all to the work of your Lord? Do you say, Yes, God will have my all entirely and forever? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans 12.1 The altar of God is before you. A complete sacrifice is the thing required. Are you ready to forsake all your selfish plans? You who have gifts that are preparing you for the ministry, will you devote them with all your soul to this work? Will you deal honestly and truly with my Master? Do you love His cause? and regard it as your highest glory to be a laborer together with God in gathering in the nations of lost people to the fold of your Redeemer?